Graphic Audio. A movie in your mind. Graphic Audio presents The Lightbringer Saga, Book 2. The Blinding Knife, Part 2. Created by Brent Weeks. Narrated by Richard Rowan. With performances by Christopher Sheeran, Joe Brack, Karen Novak, Stephen Carpenter, Kimberly Gilbert, Elliot Dash, Tracy Oliveira, Michael John Casey, Laura Reichert, David Coyne, Richard Rowan, David Harris, Tim Getman, James Konachek, Eric Messner, Susan Linsky, Thomas Keegan, Daniel Sontag, Thomas Penny, Michael Glenn, Casey Platt, Colleen Delaney, Dylan Lynch, Robert Collins, Anastasia Wilson, Patrick Bussink, Tim Carlin, Nick DePinto, Alyssa Wilmoth, Joel Santner, Johan Detweiler, Christopher Graybill, Bradley Smith, Drew Copas, Nanette Savard, James Lewis, Dolores King Williams, Gary Tells, Yasmin Twazon, Evan Casey, Ken Jackson, Jessica Lefko, Katie Karkov, Elizabeth Jernigan, Barbara Pinolini, Ren Casey, and Lily Beacon. The Blinding Knife, Part 2. Kip followed Grinwoody sullenly. Everything about the room was the same as always. Door, curtain, darkness. And Roskyle was already seated at the table. As Grinwoody brought out the superviolet lantern, Kip took a seat across from the old man. Can I use your deck this time? No. You play the hand given you. You're a bastard. You get the bad deck. Oh, I'm a bastard now. So, you don't doubt who my father is? Kip swallowed. He shouldn't have said it. But Andros Giles said nothing. He picked up his deck and began shuffling. At my son's side, you always never been in question, you fool. Even your voice sounds like his. The question was whether your mother was a concubine or simply a whore. If he's claimed she was a concubine merely to vex me, I shan't let it stand. I knew for a fact there was no marriage, and I bet you know it too. I didn't exist yet, so actually, no. You still have that bandage on your hand? Yes, my lord. Oh, is my lord now? Kip didn't know if he hated himself more for his earlier recklessness or for his later deference to the old buzzard. Take off the bandage. Untying the knot near his wrist, took his fingers and his teeth, but soon Kip had unwrapped the linen. The burns were healing, but the skin was pink where it wasn't white with scars, and his fingers were bent permanently. He could tighten them into a fist, but it hurt to even try to straighten them. The Carurgeon and Iron Fist both urged him to try, but it was agony. Put your hand out, bastard. I'm blind. Kip put his hand on the table. The old man put his hand on top of Kip's. Oh, please, it's very painful. Hmm. And Russ traced his bony, pale, long, loose-skinned fingers over Kip's hand, heedless of the oily unguent. It stung, but Kip held still. 
You'll lose the use of this hand quickly if you don't stretch your fingers. Yes, my lord, I know. And Ruscow turned Kip's hand over, palm down. You know. So you've chosen to become a cripple? Why? Because it hurts. Because it hurts. You're ashamed. I can hear it. Yes, my lord. You should be. Keep your hand on the table. Scream when it hurts too much. Andros pushed down on Kip's hand, flattening it slowly. Kip felt the new-formed skin at his joints tear open. I'm a big tub of lard. A shame, an embarrassment, but I am the fucking turtle bear. You can go to hell, Andros Guile, you old, heartless, cruel... The ligaments in Kip's hand were on fire. His whole palm was touching the tabletop, but his fingers were stubborn claws, arched up. And then, suddenly, the pressure stopped. Tears were leaking down Kip's cheeks. He cradled his hand to his chest. That which you would have serve you, you must bend to your will. Even your own body. Perhaps especially your own body, fat one. Did the skin tear? Yes, my lord. Smear the unguent back into the cuts. You don't want it getting infected. With a trembling hand, Kip did. You know what I'm going to tell you next, right? Keep doing it. All day, every day. So that it heals right. Then he felt another wave of shame. He did know what to do. He simply hadn't had the will to do it. Andros Guile didn't even have to say anything. You did well. Huh? You didn't scream. I expected you to. So this time, no stakes. A practice game. Next time is for your little friend, though. So I hope you're getting better. With no further talking, Andros Guile dealt himself his cards. Six face down, two up, a stalker, and a green warden. That meant he was using his green and shadow deck, one of his best. Kip wrapped his bandages loosely around his hand and drew his own cards from the pure white deck that Andros had given him to play. Kip had played with it twice before, and he was finally getting comfortable with its strategy. His up cards were the Eye of Heaven, a power enhancer, and the Dome of Ericles. Kip cursed inwardly. No stakes. He'd just drawn this deck's best possible opening hand. His hand cards were good, too. He actually had a reasonable shot at winning. There were no choices for his first two rounds, and unless he drew something game-changing in the interim, all he had to do was survive until the sixth round. When you say we play for my little friend, what do you mean? Andros played Cloak of Darkness, making Kip's Gambit much less likely. That... slave girl. Andros seemed to be at a loss to remember her name. Kip didn't supply it, for fear that he was being baited. Adrostia. Kip looked at Grinwoody. The man was wearing odd, heavy spectacles that Kip hadn't seen before. Adrostia. I'll buy her, and if you win, I'll give her to you. You can take her as your room slave. I don't imagine your village gave a boy of your dubious charms many opportunities for the pleasures of the flesh, did it? And if I lose? She'll be my slave. Worry about that as you will. His mouth twitched in a shadow of a smile. Kip, I'm a slave. You don't even know what that means. He did now. Kip was a fat bastard from the armpit of the Seven Satrapies, but he had choices. Tia didn't. Other people might look down on Kip, but they didn't even see Tia. Or when they did, it might not be the way she'd want to be seen. What's your plan for me? A question my own son would never have dared to ask. Are you bold? A stupid boy. Both, and you're avoiding the question. Andros Giles' lips pursed. 
He lifted two fingers, waved them forward. A fist crashed across Kip's cheek. Grin, Woody. Mayor Holm scratched out his eyes with sand. Kip had fallen out of his chair and dropped his cards. He picked them up slowly, regaining his composure. It's amusing once in a while, Kip, but I don't tolerate much disrespect. Remember, I'll be reminded. So, are you going to tell me or not? It depends on how good of a Nine Kings player you are. Kip was too smart for once to follow that up with. But what's the end game, Rossi? Sure, the Giles nearly rule the world, but prisms don't last forever. Your family's almost gone. What do you want? Maybe Andros Gal had been scheming so long that he didn't know how to not scheme. Maybe there was no winning, and he knew it. But losing was definitely possible, and his pride wouldn't allow him to lose. So he'd fight and fight and tear down a hundred other families, and keep clawing until they finally nailed shut his crypt under the Chromeria. I don't have that much left that you can take away from me, so how many more times can we play? After a while, with nothing to lose, I'll only be able to win. But it was impossible to imagine Androscow putting him in a position where only good things could happen. Three more times. He had thought of it, the old shark. Kip said nothing, and lo and behold, silence actually paid off. Once we play for who owns Adrastia, and then we play again for your future. I don't think I like you very much. Oh, that's a crying shame, because I mean for you to hate me as much as you hate your mother. Don't. Excuse me? Don't. Again, the head tilt, weighing Kip. Your move. Kip made a mistake on the seventh round, not correctly calculating the cascading effect of the card's abilities on each other, and watched Andros put together a brilliant series. Kip lost on the next turn. <sighs> he collected his cards. It was, as Andros Gail had said, a practice round without even timers. But Kip could have won. With luck, he could win against Andros Gail. It was possible, even with Andros Gail's decks. Just unlikely. Kip flipped through the deck, seeing what cards would have come next. What might have happened if he hadn't botched it. How long do I have? A drafter of your abilities? Maybe 15 years. Andros was grinning. He knew that wasn't what Kip meant, so Kip didn't take the bait for once. One week, then we play the first game. I'll arrange it with her present owner. And you can fantasize about what you'll do with her if you win. Of course, you have to win first. <laughs> You think you'll free her, don't you? Truth is, you're not as altruistic as you think. No one who shares a drop of the guile blood is. Blood is destiny, bastard. Don't forget it. Kip heard the words, but suddenly they lost meaning, blew apart into irrelevance. The art on one of the white cards was different than he'd remembered. Or maybe because he'd been studying miniature portraits of all the cards, he simply hadn't noticed. Heaven's finger. It was a dagger, white, veined with black, with seven colorless gems gleaming in the blade. It was the dagger Kip's mother had given him. He was stunned. Hearing Grinwoody whispering something in Andros's ear, Kip looked up quickly. Hellfang, you've seen it. Not the card, the real one. It was a shot right in Kip's big soft stomach. I... no, what are you talking about? Hellfang is its other name, Marrowsucker. The blinder's knife. You've seen it. I'm right, aren't I? Kip said nothing, but he realized the last part wasn't to him. He jumped when he saw the card, my lord. Definitely recognition. He'd been set up. 
Androscow had been playing him these games all this time simply to lure Kip into a false sense of security. Complacency. Kip had played the white deck twice now, and the card had never come up. Andros Kyle had been content to play him again and again so that Kip would be off guard when it did. All that time so that Kip would give an honest, startled reaction if he had seen the knife before. It had all been a trap. We'll talk more when you're ready. I know your mother stole it. I know she wanted to give it to Gavin, maybe in return for him making you legitimate. I want to know where it is and what my son knows about it. In return, I offer you the girl. Think about it. Not only will you get someone to warm your bed, which, face it, you have no hope of otherwise, but also a drafter's contract is worth a lot of money over the course of a life. Your tuition has been paid, but you have no other income. Maybe you can beg some scraps from Gavin if he remembers you, if you want to be a beggar. Otherwise, tendering her services is the only way you'll be able to keep from having to find a sponsor yourself. Or for a few bits of information that I'm going to find out regardless, if I learn it from somewhere else, you get nothing. Kip was out of his depth. Playing his wits against Andros Guile was like playing Nine Kings with only two cards against an expert with a full deck. Kip's cards were ignorance and stupidity. Not winners. I'll see you in a week. Have Tia's papers ready. I intend to win. As soon as Kip got out of sight, he ran. He took the stairs down to his level and ran until he was within sight of his barracks. There was a man standing outside the barracks. Hello, sir. Uh... I've been told to tell you that Lord Andros Gail wishes to reward you for your fine play. You've been given your own room. Your things have already been moved. Would you like to follow me? That old, decrepit, infuriating spider. He was magnificent. He just played a scry and looked at Kip's hand. For one moment, Kip couldn't help but admire how well played it was. How better to go through all of Kip's possessions than by helping him move? And how could Kip object? He was getting a better room for nothing. So, Kip did the smartest thing he'd done all day. He went upstairs, without making some excuse to first go into the barracks and check to see if the dagger was still in the chest five beds down. If they'd stolen it, it was already gone. If it was still there, he'd only be tipping them off. He'd come back later. His new room wasn't large, but it did have a bed with new sheets and a warm blanket, a desk, a couple of chairs, and a small window to the outside. There was a lock on the door. The servant handed him a key. Nice touch. The people most likely to steal from him doubtless already had a copy. Thank you. Tell Lexlo Guile I was left speechless by his generosity. Tell him, nice scry. Nice try, sir? Nice scry. Scry? Very well, sir. The man waited near the door, and Kip realized he was supposed to give him a tip. I'm terribly sorry, but I don't have any money. The man glanced around the room as if to say, Awfully nice rooms and situation you've got here for a pauper. As if to say, Liar. Thank you, now goodbye. He nearly slammed the door on the man's face, suddenly angry, deeply embarrassed. But as the door closed, he realized that Lord Guile had done this, too. He had plenty of slaves who could have brought Kip to his new room. Slaves weren't tipped, and the use of slaves so that your guests didn't have to worry about tipping was a courtesy often shown between the rich. Lord Guile was reminding Kip of his poverty, of his tenuous position, rubbing his nose in it, reminding him how badly Kip needed Tia. Kip didn't know much about the economies of it, but he did know that some drafters never pledged themselves to any satrapy, instead being supported privately. 
Those lords or merchants then sometimes rented out the services of their drafters to whoever needed them. Mercenaries. For those who couldn't afford the time and money it took to invest in developing a drafter, it was a bargain. But Tia's talent was worthless, wasn't it? Or priceless in the right quarters. Gavin, father, would you please come back? I'm afraid I'm going to do something awful here. It was too late to go find Tia. She'd probably be done with her shift by now, but Kip couldn't stay here. He wasn't tired anyway, and he had four hours before his midnight training time with her and Iron Fist. He left the Prism's Tower and walked into Big Jasper. As he crossed through a market, he swore that for a few steps, everyone's gait was synchronized. One, two, three steps, all simultaneous. Then it passed. He must have imagined it. A few people looked at each other, then went back to their business. In half an hour, he was back in front of Janus Borg's door. He saw shadows shift on the rooftops nearby. Guards? The traps slid open, and he saw her peer out. Where can I get a deck of black cards? Back so soon, you see? I told you you're smarter than you thought. Come in! Come in. You know I don't like to start fights. Gavin froze with a bit of rabbit stew on its way to his mouth. Clearly not an opening that boded well. <laughs> he and Karis were eating alone tonight in their little tent not far from the beach. The weeks had passed in a blur of meaningful work and renewed friendship and fruitless searching and quietly growing dread. The Tyrians had landed in wonder and tears. The Third Eyes people had provided an enormous feast and Gavin had put the Tyrians to work immediately. Within days, he had a plan and a routine. As much as possible, he handed over power to Corvin Danavis, supporting his decisions, deferring to him publicly, and bolstering the man until the Tyrians were almost as likely to turn to Corvin to settle disputes and give guidance when Gavin was there as when he was gone. And Gavin was gone almost every day, scouring the seas for the Blue Bane with Karis. He'd sat with his abacus and his map, checked and double-checked his calculations and his assumptions, and then checked and double-checked the seas. The Bane wasn't there. Wherever the two hours east and two and a half hours south started from, it wasn't from his beach on Sears Island. Nor, running it backward, was it simply two hours west and two and a half hours north of White Mist Reef. Though that had taken him some time to figure out, too, because the reef wasn't simply one point on the map. It was an entire zone in the sea, five times larger than Sears Island. So, did he measure that distance from the presumed center of the reef, or from some particular point therein, or from every possible point in a circle? And it wasn't like his skimmer's speed was a simple constant either. Some days he was tired, and he'd cover leagues less, though he thought he'd been traveling at the same rate. It's about Kip. Yes? What are you doing to that boy? Pardon? He's a boy, Gavin. I was under the impression he was a ptarmigan. Don't give me that. I have no idea what we're even talking about. You've given him some impossible task, haven't you? How do you know? I know you. You say that like it's a bad thing. He's a boy, not a weapon. You've loosed him like an arrow at some target, I don't know who. I don't even care. You're using him to advance some agenda. That's right. We all serve. It's not right. He's a good kid and he deserves better. You've acknowledged him as your son, now be a father! What? What did you just say? He's a child! You're treating him like he's another soldier! He needs your time, Gavin! He needs you to put him first! I don't put him first! Exactly! Exactly! 
And what exactly would you have me abandon so I can go have playtime with Junior? Clothing and housing 50,000 refugees? Not important. Destroying a bane? Not important. Saving all seven satrapies? Not important. That's not what I meant and you know it. You've said Kip is your son. Are you going to treat him like he's your son or not? Kip is not important! Then you are a smaller man than I thought you were. What would you have of me? Decency. Decency! I do everything for others. Everything! A lie? But so very close to true. How is it that those closest to you get the worst of you, Gavin Kyle? Out! Get out! She got up and walked out. At the flap of the tent, she turned pitiless eyes on him. You're a great man, but only when seen from afar. Then she was gone. What the hell was that about? He thought things were warming up with Karis as they worked together. They'd always worked well together, always enjoyed each other's company, even when they didn't speak. And now this, this ambush. Where did this come from? Women. He could go after her. He should go after her. And what? Tell her what? Tell her the whole truth? The thought chilled his anger. Damn! He pulled out his charts. He had work to do. Damn her. He'd ended up abandoning his shortcut, which had probably put him two weeks behind what a methodical approach would have yielded, and narrowed the search through guesswork and good intelligence. He'd visited cities around the Cerulean Sea, asking if people had seen blue whites, and if so, what direction they were traveling. He'd even come across whites twice, once in a sailing dinghy, the other rowing a blue Luxon dory of its own design. Both had been as unhelpful as possible, of course, trying to kill Gavin and Karis, but Gavin had found where each had come from. One from a little town outside Edas in Atash, and the other from Garriston. Taking the Blues' pension to move in efficient straight lines, he'd calculated where their paths should intersect, and found nothing there. Clearly, one or both of them had either been a bad sailor, or had been blown off course by the autumnal storms that were all too frequent now. Blown off course by a storm from out of nowhere. Pity the bastards. Ambushed. No wonder they say the sea is a woman. Gavin had ended up dividing the Cerulean Sea into zones and grids, and he would skim as far as he could, checking every half hour on his sextant and compass that he was staying on line. Of course, at the speeds he was traveling, he could have gone off course for a half hour by a few degrees, easily done during the hard weather, then corrected himself, and the next day traversed that day's path perfectly, and still have cut a wide enough berth that he would miss a small island. The only other option was to stop every ten minutes and take painstaking readings. He was adept in the tool's use, but stopping that often meant leagues and leagues that he didn't even get to. He also had to be aware that the bane was moving. If it moved too fast, it could go straight across his grid and he'd never be the wiser. Even if all his other calculations and guesses were accurate, it was infuriating. Karras had suggested he build another condor and fly. It would have been a great suggestion if he could still draft blue. It had taken him months to design the condor with the original materials, and it had still been a long way from perfect. Yellow Luxon could be substituted for blue, but it was heavier and infinitely more difficult to draft a stable version. He thought that within a couple of weeks he could figure out a design that would suffice, but made from solid yellow, it would be a permanent design. He couldn't make a new one every day, and he couldn't easily unravel it if he'd lost it to some enemy. So that meant finding a secure place to store it while he perfected it. And then, if something went wrong when he was in midair, he wouldn't be able to simply patch it quickly with blue. If something went wrong, he would crash, and all his work would be for naught. 
If he knew that he was going to be searching the sea for six months, it would be worth it. But he didn't know that. Beyond infuriating. And his Tyrians needed him. Their feud rafters would burn themselves out, helping with clearing forests and building shelters if Gavin didn't lend them aid. Corvin had convinced the Seer's Islanders, who were almost all drafters, to help in exchange for future work, but there was still always more work to be done. Instead of trying to do it all himself, Gavin put his copious drafting abilities to work in a way that first amused himself and then astounded everyone else. He built bricks. Yellow Luxon bricks. With what they learned building Brightwater Wall, his architects and laborers built forms for interlocking solid bricks. Gavin would walk around the forms every morning for an hour, filling them with yellow luxon, drafted perfectly, sealed perfectly, practically indestructible, and then he'd head out for the day. The laborers took the bricks and built everything out of them. At first, content to simply guard him on the island and while they traveled, Karis had eventually begun helping out on her own. She trained the best of the locals in fighting, sometimes organizing javelina hunts. Though javelinas and the rarer giant javelinas had long been native to Tyria, there hadn't been any close to Garrison for decades, and facing the dangerous, unpredictable animals was the next best training to actual warfare. Whenever Gavin and Karis returned to the island, he was always surprised. With plentiful free building supplies and 50,000 willing workers and friendly locals and good governance, their little port went from a camp to a settlement in quick order. There were no walls, as per Corvin's agreement with the Third Eye, who thought that mutual vulnerability was a better guarantor of peace than mutual defensibility. But every other possible structure was springing up. Gavin felt proud to be part of building something for once. He spent most evenings with Corvin, talking governance, mulling over problems, making plans, even playing a game or two of Nine Kings. It was good to talk, to jest, to drink too much wine every once in a while. And he'd kept Karis at arm's length, desperate for her companionship and desperately fearful of her, treating those closest to him worst, indeed. He set the charts down. He hadn't even been looking at them for the last few minutes. This wasn't about Kip, at least not purely about Kip. For Karis, this was about the path not taken. Kip was of an age where he could have been their son. Had Gavin not broken his and Karis's betrothal, Karis wasn't saying, How can you keep your distance from a bastard you unknowingly whelped on some peasant? She was saying, Is this the kind of father you would have been to our son? Oh, Olam, have mercy. It was a punch in the stomach. And she was right. Kip was a good boy, but Gavin barely knew him. And he certainly didn't know what to do with him. He should have kept him here, should have trained him himself. It hadn't even really occurred to him. He'd seen Kip as baggage, a burden to be passed off to Commander Iron Fist as quickly as possible. Everyone had demands of the prism, and that had been one too many. Kip was a good boy, but he wasn't Gavin's son. Gavin could tell the whole world that he was. He could take the disgrace of having fathered a bastard. He could even face his own father over it. But there was a difference between a grand gesture and daily decency. Add Kip to the list of problems awaiting him when he got back to the Chromeria. Not waiting, festering. Many of them problems that he desperately wanted to go tackle, but he felt trapped until he found the Blue Bane. The next morning, Karis greeted him as if nothing had happened, and he let it lie too. There was nothing he could do about Kip or anything else until he found the Bane. So he stopped whenever he saw ships out in the open sea, transformed the skimmer into a dory and rode to them, asked his questions and deflected theirs, and kept searching. The problems elsewhere had to be growing. 
If he was gone too much longer, the Chromiri would declare him dead, despite the letters he sent with ship captains and the return letters from the Chromiria that he ignored. But he couldn't leave his search. He hated Blues too much. This too is part of his five purposes, to destroy all Whites. He owed Sebastian that. Nothing would keep him from it, not even the Chromeria itself. He took Karis with him almost every day, partly because she wouldn't let him leave her, and partly because he hoped she would feel the blue. The third eye had let slip that everyone in the proximity of a bane would be affected, but drafters most powerfully. Gavin's plan was to use Karis to find it, and then go back the next day without her to destroy it. She would be furious with him, of course, but he didn't care. And the days passed, and passed, and passed. Two months passed. Three. I can give them to you. There had to be some catch, of course. No one was going to give Kip something he needed so desperately. The black cards had to be priceless. But it's going to cost me something. Janus closed the door behind him, threw many latches and bolts home. No, free gift. Which, come to think of it, is redundant, isn't it? But, uh... But do you know what it's like to carry around an item of total wealth in your pocket? Walking down a back alley and knowing that you could buy every single house and shop on the block with what's in your pocket. It's terrifying. One of these cards is worth that, Kip. If I give you a deck, you'll be carrying more than you may make in your entire life. And the wealth isn't simply monetary. You'd be carrying history. History you could drop in a puddle and utterly ruin, or that could be quite literally stolen and gone forever. Do you have any idea how frightening that is? Kip was thinking of the dagger that might or might not still be in the chest in the barracks. That's something that's been bothering me. Your home here, don't get me wrong, it's nice and all, but it's here. It's not where I expect to find fortunes. My husband and I built this house nigh under 50 years ago now. I like it here. I know it doesn't seem like a safe place to keep what I have here, but it's much more secure than you know. I spend a fortune to make it secure. The prism and the whole spectrum couldn't come take something that I didn't want to give them. Now, 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 where were... Ah, the black cards. The question is, do you want the black cards because they're forbidden? Or do you simply want to beat Andros Guile? Kip scowled. It felt like the wrong answer. I just want to beat Andros Guile. In that case, you don't need a full deck of black cards. I don't? The cards weren't outlawed because they made good game cards, Kip. They were outlawed because they told stories that the Chromeria no longer wanted told. Just as when I released the new cards, the first new cards in many, many years, they will not be popular among those they depict. Can I use the new cards? No, absolutely not. They're not finished. And when they are, my life will be in greater peril than usual. I'll accept that risk when the time comes, but not yet. Someone would kill you over cards that are true? Especially over such things, Kip. If I could just make up whatever I wanted, then, well, who am I? She tamped some tobacco into her pipe. It seemed awfully dark. Some old woman, no one. 
truth gives power. Light reveals... A whoosh of fire from the tip of her pipe interrupted her. It leapt up to the ceiling. Oh, damn it! Not again! She dropped the pipe that she'd loaded with black powder. She stamped on the scattered flames that were trying to set the garbage alight, but soon the gunpowder burned itself out. Damn it! Second one this week. Are you in danger? Of course I am! But I'm very hard to find, and I'm very well protected. I found you no problem. That's because I meant you to find me, little Guile. Besides, haven't you seen my men? Um... Kip had thought he'd been watched. Black clothes, silver shield sitter. Hmm, say that six times fast. Well, good then. Perhaps they're almost worth what I'm paying them. Now, where were we? Oh, never mind. Come upstairs. Kip followed her. Here's the catch. I knew it! I won't let you take a card until you've lived it. Lived it? Lived the memory in the card, like before. In case you lose it, I don't want those memories lost. Uh, how about, um, instead of taking your Worth of Fortune original cards, how about I take copies? You know, like people usually play with, the normal people, I mean. That is the most sensible idea I've heard in a long time. It would also allow me to put the blind man's marks on the cards, which would make Lord Guile far more likely to allow you to use them. Kip, you're brilliant! Brilliant? She hadn't even thought of using cheap cards. Janice Borg was so smart it was a miracle she could get dressed in the morning. Him thinking of the normal thing wasn't evidence of being smart. It was the opposite. Great! Well, let's make you a deck. Gunner. Back into the same one. There was something important about this one. He had to find the right time. He had no idea what he was doing, but he had to learn. Captain Bershward is a bit crabbed this morning. That might have had something to do with us killing two of his men and presently attempting to make off with his fine galley, his excellent rowers, his rich cargo, and his miserable self. Captain Gunner is going to ask one more time, Captain Burstwort. I need that chain key. I scowl. Huh. Well, I suppose that wasn't a question now, was it? But that was. The captain and his brother and two officers are seated, hands tied behind their backs on the gunwale. And on this galley, it is a gunwale. There are two cannons propped up on it. Ooh, the captain looks furious. His brother, Cray, despite his naturally ruddy complexion, the two sailors with him, terrified. They're Angori folk, from beyond the ever-dark gates. Big, burly men, wear their blonde hair long and braided. Matrilineal, sons of disappointment. Odd, barbarian customs and strange cloying drink made with honey. But, great sailors. Worthy of respect for being able to shoot through the Everdark Gates. It is one thing that Captain Gunner hasn't done. Yet. Where is the chain key? I'm a finger breath from his face. The key is for the galley slave's chains below decks. Not to free them or some such silliness, but because the oars are locked in place. It isn't common, or I would have prepared for it. Of course, it is just a chain. We can get through it. We have tools. We have powder. I can make a perfect charge in probably three minutes, and most likely not even set fire to the boat or kill anyone. But a key's faster. And the majority of Burstward's men are coming back to the galley right now from shore leave in the city of Rue. 
Their rowboat ambling over the waves, men hungover and sloppy, not 500 paces out. There isn't even a swivel gun on the deck to take care of them. We've only found two muskets so far, old matchlocks that I don't want to trust my life to. If his men make it to the galley, well, they'll likely kill us all. <laughs> nice galley, triple sweeps. Faster, but more likely to get the oars crossed, eh? Tenth fastest in the Blue Gods fleet, which means it's the fastest fucking galley in series piss bottle by a long time shot. Best oar boys in the world didn't foul the sweeps once, not even coming through the gates themselves. They've noticed that his galley slaves aren't the usual skinny lot that stupider galley captains keep. You let your rowers waste away to nothing, and they get weak, and you get a slow boat. Burst Ward is smarter than that. His slaves are thick, muscled men, clean, no diseases, and big. Expensive to keep slaves in that good a shape, but worth it. Worth a double for a pirate, especially if they're well trained. I'm taking a richer prize than I'd realized. If I can get away with it. Chain Key. He says nothing. Brave man, balancing precariously on the gunnel. I can admire that. Rinky, sinky, dinky, or don't. Rinky what? Huh. Apparently he's not familiar with the game. Rinky tis. I kick the first man in the chest. He flies overboard. It isn't easy to swim with your hands tied behind your back, but it can be done. For a while. But not by Rinky. <laughs> he panics, flashes, sinkies. Give me a number, Captain. Oh, what? A sudden look of fear. Serious tits, Gillen. That be his brother. Pick a fucking number. Rinky, sinky, dinky. Go. I pull out my pistol and point at each man in turn. Once was a pirate by the name of Slow. Pick the sinner as a winner, and here's the way to it go! Three! One! I stick the barrel of my pistol against the captain's forehead. Watch him shiver, go blink, grit his teeth in defiance an instant later. Two! I release the hammer and bring up my knife with the other hand to the brother's throat. I draw the knife up to his chin through his thick, braided blonde beard. <gasps> his eyes are squeezed tight shut. Three! I pull the dagger back, and this is the way it shall be. No! 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 I poke him hard in the forehead with one bony finger instead of stabbing him. He tries to keep his balance, but I keep pushing. He tumbles off into the water. <laughs> Kevin, we ain't got much time. I look at my man. This is me hurrying! He swallows and shuts up. Give me a number, Captain. I aim the pistol at him first. Odd numbers will land at the captain, evens at his brother. Easy to figure, if you're figuring straight. That man had a family! He survived the rinky sinky dinky! Ah, fuck it! I shoot his brother in the knee! Ah! A lead ball the size of your thumb hitting a kneecap and squishing will basically tear your leg off. I have to grab the brother to keep him from tumbling off the gunnel. I'm tired of this game! Last chance, or I kill you both and fight! I like fighting. Tell me, and you live. In my cabin, above the doorframe. Worst hiding spot ever. If I had had more men, I'd shoot one of them for missing it. My first mate is already running for it. He emerges a second later and heads below decks with a couple of others. 
They're following the plan. Should make a good crew. It'll take perhaps half a minute. We'll make it. You're gonna kill us now, aren't ya? His brother is barely conscious. I told you I wouldn't. And I'm the son of a whore and an apostate Luxiot. My word is my bond. I grin crazily at him. He goes white. I tie a narrow rope tight around his brother's leg to stop the bleeding. You want your brother to live a cripple or die? Live. I take the captain's sword. <laughs> Odd and gory thing. It's fat down at the point. Sweeping broadly so there's no way you could put it in a scabbard. I slash the blade into the brother's leg just above the knee and below the tied rope. It lops the limb clean off. Not clean clean. It still bleeds, of course. Tourniquet only does so much good. The captain looks like he's about to vomit. I toss the blade aside. Check the progress of the rowboats. The men in those boats realize something is wrong. They heard my pistol shot, and now they're rowing with a purpose. It'll be a near thing. I roll one leg over and pour black powder on this bleeding stump. It takes three tries before I can get the spark to catch. You know, it's odd how appetizing cooking man smells. One leg passes out. The captain is a-looking at me like he doesn't know what the hell I am. Lash him to the barrels! Empty barrels, you morons! My men do, just as fifty oars on each side rattle out. Triple sweeps. Put more oars in the water gives you more speed. I jump on the tiller. No wheel on this boat, sadly. Just a straight tiller. Eh, raiders can't be choosers, I guess. Captain Birchward is still staring at me, shaking and shivering. But now with fury. The old gods are being reborn! All of this is dying, pirate! The Everdark gates will open, and we'll descend on you like the raptors of Kazakh Dune. We won't be exiled forever, thief! The white mists will part for us! Our time is... Oh. 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 Mott is being reborn even now, pirate! Can you feel it? We're here to announce his coming! Your days are over! Mott the Blue God. I got my hands full with one blue goddess already. My men throw the captain and his brother over the side. They bob to the surface by the buoyancy of the barrels, but they roll underneath the water by then. Have to fight to breathe. As do we all. Every day. The galley oars dip and sweep low. That's your captain and his brother! Save them or let them drown! It's all the same to me! Giving the men in the rowboat the choice of rescuing their captain or coming after us divides their attention, gives us another few seconds. I see a couple of muskets come up. I duck. Series, I love the sound. A few men even blow chunks out of the wood. Excellent shots. Wish I could have had them on my crew. The first rowboat has gone after the captain. The second is coming after us. Truce! Pillar! He takes it. I leap up onto the gunwale and salute the men rolling after us. Good day, boys! You've just been bested by Captain Gunner. Ain't no shame in losing to the best. You tell your grandbabies about this day, and you'll live to do so. So turn back now, because I'm Captain Gunner, slayer of sharks and sea demons, and I'll add you to the tally if you want. <laughs> the galley slaves sweep their big oars again and again. It's enough. We pick up speed. 
I remove my hat with a flourish and bow as the galley leaves its original owners behind. Love that musket music. But I've already turned to my men. Take an inventory. Captain Gunner wants to take another ship within the week. I need to know if I'll have black powder for the job, or if I'll have to do it with my giant personality alone. And what the hell do these barbarians drink? Mead? Break out the mead! A measure for everyone! And two more tonight if you keep me chippy! The 35 scrubs stood in neat lines, hands folded behind their backs, listening intently. Trainer Fisk usually handled their drills and conditioning, but today they were to be addressed again by Commander Iron Fist. Two students had left after speaking with their sponsors about the impending war, but only two. Tia was proud of that. She was also keenly aware that being proud of ignoramuses who had no idea what they were getting into was probably silly. Commander Iron Fist walked to the front of the class, his head freshly shaven and oiled. His blackguard garb, cotton fibers infused with luxon to make a stretchy second skin, showed the massive V of shoulders to waist. The gold piping down his sleeves emphasized arms as big around as some of his students' waists, the thick butt of a man who could run down a horse, and legs like Towers of the Cromeria itself. He was astonishingly beautiful. The man's muscles had veins bigger than Tia's muscles, and all loose, easy, relaxed. Tia knew that the relaxed, loose composure of a warrior meant speed. Trainer Fisk was shorter and thicker than Commander Iron Fist, but literally muscle-bound. His heavy muscles actually slowed his motion, compared with Iron Fist. Compared to Tia, of course, the trainer was fast as a loosed crossbow bolt. Your training is the best in the seven satrapies. Your training is necessary and good and effective. But your training, even here, even among the best, can hamstring you. When we practice punches, we pull them short. Because if we don't, we'd lose you all to injuries. But when you pull punches 10,000 times, it's hard not to on the 10,001st punch. The punch that you throw at a real attacker. Our necessary safeguards can make you bad fighters. Blackguards can't be bad fighters. Your class will be called on to fight and perhaps to die. Perhaps soon. And if you don't know how to kill your opponents first, a lot of you will die. Your class may have 14 pass. May, not will. So your class's training is going to be different, accelerated, harder. We will not allow you to be second rate. There is no substitute for experience, so experience you will get. This experience will cost some of you injuries that will put you out of contention for those 14 slots. We've never done this before because it's dangerous and it isn't fair. But we're out of time, so we're doing what we have to. For some of you, the tests will be easy. For some, they will be boring. For others, they will be literal fights to the death. These experiences will not be safe, will not be controlled. They may be too hard. You may be crippled or die. If you can't accept this, you may leave. Now. No one left. Failure on these tests will not automatically bar you from advancement, but it will matter. You fail, you drop three spots. Blackguards deal with what we get, not what we want. Here are the rules. You and your partner will be taken to a point in Big Jasper in one of the worst neighborhoods. You will be given a handful of coins publicly, and then you must get those coins to the Great Fountain. You are forbidden to bring weapons or draft. To pass, you must bring back six of the eight dinars you're given. 
However many you bring back, you and your partner get to keep. If you don't make it in three hours, we'll come looking for you, but don't expect any help. You're alone out there. They drew straws for the order, and an odd thing happened. The first team to draw drew number one, the second team number two, the third team number three. Trainer Fisk scowled and mixed the straws again. But the fourth drawers drew number four, the fifth number five. He mixed again. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten. He frowned but said nothing, and they dismissed it as a weird coincidence. Adrastia and Kip got a straw that put them in the last third. Not an auspicious beginning. Then they walked across town, led by Trainer Fisk and several of the older Blackguard trainees. Commander Iron Fist didn't accompany them. He had duties elsewhere. The first to go was the Mountain Perean girl, Gracia. She was lean as a willow and taller than most of the boys. Her partner was another Perean, still tall and lean, but not so dark as Gracia, and a lot uglier, Goss. He was one of the best fighters, but he had a habit of picking, scabs, nose, earwax, and eating it. He was within a hair's breadth of earning the obvious nickname. A sizable crowd had gathered to see what these blackguards were doing in a bad neighborhood, and not all of the faces were friendly. Most were wary, but curious. Trainer Fisk bade Gracia and Goss come forward, publicly handed them the eight dinars, counting out the coins, then bound a red handkerchief around each one's forehead. Bring these safely to the Great Fountain. No one in the Blackguard and no one in the Chromeria is going to help you. If you lose these coins, it's on your own head. You're not allowed to use weapons. You're not allowed to draft. It wasn't a fortune, but for an unskilled laborer, it was as much as they could make in two weeks. And these children had it. And the Watchers knew where the children were taking it, so they could guess what routes they'd take. And Trainer Fisk had just announced that the children wouldn't be protected from on high. Gracia and Goss were smart, though. Smarter than Tia would have credited. They ran. If they went by a direct route, they would travel faster than the news could. In fact, depending on how long Fisk made the teams wait in between attempts, the same strategy might work for the first few teams. Anyone hoping to ambush the Blackguards coming through would have to hear the news and then have to take the time to gather their gang to do so. After five minutes, Trainer Fisk announced it all again, bound the red handkerchiefs around the brows of the second team, and handed them their money. They ran too. The crowd of the curious continued to grow, but Kip was watching the edges of the crowd to see who was leaving, and Tia followed his gaze. She saw several young men go different ways, each looking furtively back toward the circle, as if afraid that their payday would leave. The scrubs were talking among themselves, trying to figure out strategies. If Tia was doing the arithmetic right, she and Kip had almost two hours before it would be their turn. When she thought about how many thugs could be gathered in that time, her mouth went dry. They would come for money like sharks came for blood. She was still thinking about it when she noticed that Kip had walked away. Where are you going? Where all of you should be going. What? Scouting. The scrubs looked at Trainer Fisk. No rules but the rules you were given. Kip was brilliant. He'd seen it in a second. Don't obey what the rules mean. Obey what the rules say. That was the test as much as getting the coins through safely. Within another ten seconds, all the scrubs scattered, except those who were up next. Fercuti and Delos went from looking excited to be going so early, to looking stricken, keenly aware of their sudden relative ignorance. Tia and Kip made a slow circuit of the nearby streets. They didn't speak. After a while, they heard the sounds of a fight one block over. Tia ran toward the fight. Kip followed close after, though he was slower than she was. We don't even have the money yet, you morons! There was a wide girl whose name Tia didn't know, and she was shouting at some bloody-nosed tough on the ground in front of her, 
Do you see the red kerchief? The girl's partner, Rudd, a squat coastal Parian who wore the Gotra, didn't look angry or triumphant. He looked scared. He was bleeding from a deep gash in his shoulder. I should kill you! The tough scrambled back on all fours, then turned and ran. We need to get you back to train a fist, Rudd. Right away. Rudd nodded, and together the four of them walked briskly the four blocks back to the square. Rudd leaned on his partner and then on Kip too, as his blood loss made him nearly faint. Tia walked ahead of them, on the lookout for threats. On catching sight of them, Trainer Fisk ran to meet them. The Blackguard scrubs were only steps behind him. They took Rudd, made him lie down, and instantly began tending to the cut. Lie down on this, Rudd. This is gonna hurt. Then there was a quick flash of fire and the stench of burned flesh and tea leaves and tobacco as they cauterized the cut with Red Luxon. One of the best boys in the class, Jun, came back into the square, pressing through the crowd. The next team was just about to leave, two skinny brothers who were in the bottom third of the scrubs. Don't take Low Street. There's a roadblock there. Twenty thugs, some of them armed. They've already got Pip and Valor. Oh, lovely. That was where T was hoping to go. Well, that left only... Corbine Street's blocked too. The alleys through Weasel Rock look clear, but they're so narrow, two men could hold them. After making sure Rudd was okay and checking the wound, Trainer Fisk made his announcements again and handed the money to the Oros brothers. I've got a plan. Huh? Uh, what is it? You'll see. Tia, Tia, you're my partner. That means I'm your partner too. You should tell me the plan. And spoil it for you? Fine then. You have any food while I wait? I'm hungry. No! No, really, I am hungry. I wouldn't lie to you about that. Don't be thick. Kip held his hands up to himself, as if measuring his thickness. <sighs> I can't help myself. She cracked a grin despite herself. Give me your coins when we start. So I can't buy a sweet roll? No. Yes, sir. It's a good plan. Mm. It'll work, promise. Bet you anything it won't. What do you give me if it does? A kiss. <gasps> then his eyes got round, like he couldn't believe what he just said. Tia felt totally frozen. Was he making fun of her? Wait, a kiss if she was right? I, um... <laughs> Kip, Tia, you're up! Rudd getting hurt put us behind schedule. Let's go! Trainer Fisk ran through the announcement again, but Tia barely heard it. She handed her coins to Kip, not looking him in the eye. Trainer Fisk bound the red kerchiefs around their brows, and then Kip took off. Despite his bulk, Kip seemed to have no trouble keeping up with her as she snaked through the crowd. She went down one block and then turned into a cooper shop, then through a smithy's yard connected to it, and then ducked into another shop. Tia was already at the counter when Kip joined her. I have a great fountain within two hours. Our man's headed up that way in half an hour, so that's no problem. The man behind the counter was grizzled and old. Tia put the coins on the counter. Delivery either to Kip here, or Trainer Fisk, or Commander Iron Fist. What are you doing? It was your idea that got me going. Now shut up! She gave brief descriptions of Trainer Fisk and Commander Iron Fist. Then she paid the courier fee, one dinar. Do you have a back door? The old man waved toward it. Thank you. Tia took the red kerchief off and motioned for Kip to do the same. It wasn't exactly a disguise, but with a blackguard scrubs garb, she wasn't going to be able to get both of them into disguises. Kip, take off your kerchief. Huh? Off! Unless you want to get jumped. Kip took off his kerchief. Getting it now. Hold on. What? This was your idea, understand? My... what? You know I usually feel smarter than this. I want you to act like all this was your idea. Why? Just do! He stood there, as mobile as a sack of paving stones, nonplussed. It's part of my strategy to make it into the Blackguard. Giving other people credit for what you do, right? Ingenious! Look at me. I'm not tall, I'm not muscular, not a bichrome. I'm fast, but I'm a girl in a subchromat. I want everyone to underestimate me, Kip. 
If they think I'm smart, they'll take me seriously. If they take me seriously, I won't make it in. She gripped the little vial on her necklace unconsciously. Without my mind, I'm not good enough to make it in. Please. I'll help you however I can. You're sure? Thousand times yes. He followed her lead. They walked to the Great Fountain via Corbine Street. They passed one group of young men who gave them hard stares, but by now the gangs had heard about the scrubs with money wearing the red kerchief, and because the scrubs' training clothes didn't have any pockets and Tia's and Kip's hands were open, it was clear that they didn't have anything. The men, some of them bloodied from encounters with the other scrubs, let them through without saying a word. When they got to the Great Fountain, though, only Commander Iron Fist was there. You can show me your money. He looked pointedly at their lack of red kerchiefs. Where are the others? Tia watched Kip nervously. So rude. And Commander Iron Fist. The commander leveled his gaze on Kip and said nothing. Kip looked away, glowered, but said nothing either. Anything Tia said would just bring her between rock and hard case, so she kept her peace. Then she realized Kip was doing it for her. He wasn't being obstinate. He was pretending to be obstinate to deflect any questions. He was alienating himself from Commander Iron Fist for Tia's sake. It almost made the brittle, fearful part of her soften. She knew how much Kip thought of the commander. The Great Fountain capped the artesian well that provided much of Big Jasper's fresh water. Large underground pipes took water to four other public areas of the city and each of the embassies, and the Cremeria had its own well. But for the poorer residents, the Great Fountain was their sole source of water. Most made the trek at least once a day, if not multiple times. The fountain itself was crowned by a glass statue of Kara's shadow blinder, the second prism. She'd been Lucidonius's widow. Face upturned toward heaven, toward Orholum's eye, instead of standing, she was suspended by the twin jets of Luxon pouring out of her hands toward the ground. Wearing only a shift, she had the lean body and the broad, muscular shoulders of a fighter. Tia had always liked that about the statue. No soft lady of leisure she, like the drafters who would follow her, Karis I's body had been shaped by the pure physical work of hurling Luxon as much as she had shaped history by using it. At all hours of the day, at least one of the thousand stars cast its light on the glass statue, illuminating it more brightly than the sun alone could. And several would illuminate it with the last and first rays of every day, making it a beacon in the darkness. Around the merry splashing of the fountain's multiple jets, a seven-pointed star took water out to seven jets, allowing for lines to form easily and move efficiently. At this time of day, there were only a few people in short lines, filling their buckets, setting them on yokes that lay across their shoulders or over their heads, in the case of the Atashians, and heading home. A number of shops lined the circle around the great fountain, and all of them were prosperous. No stalls were allowed here, nor beggars, which meant that both moved to clog the streets leading to the circle. Tia sat on one of the benches at the fountain's edge. She wanted to touch the water, but she didn't. Jasperites were fiercely particular about their water. Some of Rosella's chirurgeon had given them notions that you would get sick if you so much as drank a cup of water from the same trough where you'd washed your hands. No arguing with people's superstitions, Tia supposed. She hadn't been daydreaming for five minutes when she heard the cheering. The rest of the scrubs, they were carrying Cruxer on their shoulders, almost the whole class, minus Sir and Kip. The boys put Cruxer down in front of Commander Iron Fist. Cruxer beamed, but tried to put on a serious face. Tia studied them. At least a dozen of them had obviously been in a fight. Clothes disheveled, a chipped tooth and a grinning mouth there, a bloody nose here, an eye swelling shut on one of the prettiest girls in the class, Lucia. A number of them favoring sore hands, bleeding knuckles. Cruxer waved a hand forward. 
The class lined up before Commander Iron Fist, and now Trainer Fisk, who rode in on a horse and dismounted to stand beside his superior. Each team came forward and presented Commander Iron Fist with their coins. It wasn't everyone. Eight teams had failed, and they glumly walked off to one side, empty-handed. Tia searched the crowd and finally found Kip. He looked nervous. Kroxa, report! Sir, after my partner Lucia and I brought our coins here, we went back and rallied the others. Together, we broke the gang's blockade and brought our coins through. Uh, you did, uh, say that the only rules were the rules you'd said. So you took what I designed to be an individual test and turned it into a corporate one? It was too dangerous. I yes or no? Yes, sir. Well done, Cruxer. That is exactly what I was hoping for. Cruxer seemed to deflate with relief. You stood together, and you accomplished a job you couldn't have otherwise. For the Blackguard, the job is all that matters. To the Evernight with your pride. You accomplish your job in the most efficient way possible, and the safest way possible. We don't do this for valor or for glory. We do our job. Now, anyone else? Or are we finished? The courier rode up then. Pardon me, my lords. Commander Iron Fist. I am he. This package is for you from a Kip and a Drostia. The courier handed over a bag and then left. The commander opened it, poured the coins out into his hand. Kip, I assume this was your idea? Yes, sir. You took your coins to a courier and then just walked through? Yes, sir. Tia knew Iron Fist's face would tell her nothing, so she looked at the faces of the other scrubs. Chagrin, consternation, irritation. They had needed a fight to get through, or run like hell. Kip had cheated. They didn't even see her. Of course, they had cheated too, but their cheating had still involved fighting. Their cheating had been honorable. Surely Kip and Tia would be punished. Commander Iron Fist raised a hand, palm down. Everything has a price. You lot chose to pay the price in flesh. Kip chose to pay in coin. Some of you got off without getting hurt, but some of you did. Our bodies are our coin. Our bodies ultimately are all that we blackguards have. You chose to risk your bodies. Kip and Tia use their minds instead. If instead of coins I'd given you the white to protect, which would have been better, running a gauntlet and valiantly risking her death, or sneaking her through in some way no one expected? Kip, Tia, you did well. You each move up two places. Cruxa, Lucia, you each move up two places. Of course, you're in the top spot, Cruxa, so you stay where you are. So we'll make it so that this week you can't be challenged out of first. Next week, you're back in the mix. Those of you who came back with no coins, you each move down two places. Tonight, we go out to a nice inn together. Those of you who brought coins, though, can spend it all. But I expect you to also take care of those who didn't get any coins. We're a unit for the best. We look after each other. And so they did. They ate and drank. Commander Iron Fist paying for their meals, the scrubs buying each other drinks until they all got tipsy and Trainer Fist cut them off. They regaled each other with tales of their own heroics and reenacted epic fights, perhaps a little exaggerated. Eventually, both the commander and trainer excused themselves, no doubt to do more work. At first, there was some carping against Kip and Tia taking the easy way out. But when Kruxer came over and praised them as doing a smarter thing than even he had done, the complaining was ended 
the rift was mended, and they became one class again, with Kip and maybe even Tia held in higher regard than before. Tia barely spoke all night, but she soaked it up. It was light and life to her. She'd never felt part of something before, and she would pay anything to keep this. When she found herself stroking her necklace, she realized that for the first time, she was touching it with hope in her heart. Hope that she might actually throw the damn thing into the fire, and to hell with Aglaia Krasos. Later, she was finally coaxed into drinking a single huge glass of ale. She felt like she was floating the rest of the night, drunk on companionship, drunk on belonging. Maybe just drunk. The scrubs walked home in a raucous pack, and no one even shushed them. But as they passed over the lily stem, Kip and Tia walking at the back of the pack with Cruxor and his partner Lucia, Tia remembered something. You know the placards are forbidden to have relationships with each other, right? Tia was talking to Kip, but Cruxor and Lucia shot startled, guilty looks at her. Um, yes, uh, sure, uh, of course. Then you should know that this isn't that. This is just because of our ridiculous bet. Um, you really don't have to do... Tia put her hands on both sides of Kip's face and kissed him full on the lips. <laughs> when she released him, he looked polaxed. <laughs> oh, I want to make a ridiculous bet. Oh, no! Not with you, Kip. Let me die now, please. <clears throat> Cruxer threw his arm around Kip's shoulders. <laughs> they do it to us all, Kip. They do it to us all. <laughs>